Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. All right, friends, because Proof listeners are the best podcast audience in the world, this week we're going to give you three episodes for the price of one. What a deal! It's a theme show this week, and we've got three short stories around the same topic. One man's trash is another man's treasure. How something of no value to one person can be worth its weight in gold to someone else. You'll hear a story about the Beatles and a piece of toast. You'll go dumpster diving for dinner with an America's Test Kitchen colleague. And what if we told you it's possible to turn dessert into vodka? It's proof from America's Test Kitchen. This week, your trash, my treasure. I'm Kevin Pang. Stick around. The world of food is vast. That's exactly why Augusta Scaffier's School of Culinary Arts blends classic culinary methods with a sound business foundation. As Scaffier helps prepare students for whatever path they choose. Whether it's at their campuses in Boulder, Colorado, Austin, Texas, or getting instructions online from the convenience of your own kitchen, there's a place for you to create a career that truly caters to who you are. For more information, visit escoffier.edu. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. In 1992, the Christie's Auction House had for sale a lot of nine scrapbooks containing items that belonged to the most famous band in the history of the world. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! As reported at the time, the auction centered on one item in particular, an item so outrageous and strange it captured the imagination of the world, including a member of the band itself. That band member was guitarist George Harrison, and that scandalous item, a half-eaten piece of breakfast toast that George supposedly ate 30 years before. Our first reporter, Stephen Calabria, read about this illustrious toast around 20 years ago, and it stuck with him as one of the most excessive, ridiculous pieces of rock memorabilia ever. Who the heck would sell something like that, let alone buy it? Well, it turns out the story behind this piece of toast is more of a long and winding road than we could have imagined. The story begins in 1962 with a then 15-year-old girl from Liverpool named Susan Houghton. Houghton is her maiden name, but nowadays she goes by Sue Henderson. Sue was working in the office of an upscale shop called Waring and Gillow, which sold furniture, china, and soft furnishings. One day, her colleague in the window dressing department came into work with a small invitation. She said to me, I'm going to the cavern today. Have you ever been to the cavern? And she said, oh, I've got a friend I was at art school with, and I borrowed a record from him, and I'm taking it back. Do you want to come? Sue obliged. Growing up middle class in the port city of Liverpool, Sue hadn't been exposed to much rock and roll music at all, and had certainly never been to a live show as energetic as the ones at the Cavern. 
The Cavern Club was a dank music venue that felt like a dark stone cellar. As pictures and video make clear, the stage was barely big enough to accommodate a group of four musicians, which made the hot, claustrophobic venue all the more intimate and thrilling. According to Sue, you'd pay your nine pennies and descend around 25 stone steps and walk through multiple stone archways. Once inside, Sue and her friend found themselves near the band room. And this guy got up and started to talk to her. I was just stood next to her. And after a while, she said, oh, this is Sue who works with me in the shop. And she said, Sue, this is John Lennon. Yeah, you heard that right. And he held his hand out to shake mine, and I'd never heard of him. The two exchanged greetings. He said, how do you do? And I said, fine. It was unusual for sort of a somebody who was, he was 20 then, that would sort of shake the hand of a 15-year-old girl and ask, how do you do? But he was very well brought up, John, not a working-class hero at all. The now-iconic Cavern Club served as John Lennon and his band's home base, where they had a residency. It was still early in the Beatles' career, when they were still the hot local band and years away from achieving worldwide fame. The members were between 19 and 21 years old. From the very first note, Sue was hooked. They started to play, and the noise just bounced around the walls and into your head. It was so loud. And I was just completely spellbound. I've never heard anything like it in my life. It was amazing. After that first encounter, Sue went to see the band every chance she could. She'd run over at lunchtime to see them play, then go back after work when the band played at night. It took some convincing of her parents to let her stay out so late, but Sue and her girlfriends quickly became regulars. As Sue frequented the cavern, she wanted a way to make sure the band played the songs that she and her entourage requested, so she developed a system. I said to the girls, we need to come up with a name for ourselves and just call ourselves something. And we're more likely to get the request because it's just one name and it'll cover us all. So. I don't know where I got the name from, but I called us the Cement Mixers Guild. So consequently, I was Sue Cement Mixer, and that's how we became known. John kind of dropped the guild from our name quite early on. The Cement Mixers Guild just became the Cement Mixers. At shows, the Young Beatles sang a mix of popular rock and roll covers and some originals written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. While Sue initially fell for John, she soon switched her affections to the group's youngest member, the guitarist, George Harrison. George was, I think he was 19 at that point. And I always felt that he didn't have as many fans as Paul or John. Sue also told me that she loved to hear George sing the song Three Cool Cats. That's what ignited her interest in George. Before long, Sue Cement Mixer had gotten to know several members of the band and even learned where they were from in town. Sue sometimes ran into George's father, who drove the local bus. Sue soon became so enamored with the band that she began collecting random artifacts of theirs into a series of scrapbooks. 
The scrapbooks consisted predominantly of newspaper clippings, but also things like guitar strings, lint, one of George's socks, and a bunch of other ephemera she'd collected at various points at the club and in just hanging out with them. She's quick to say that she didn't start collecting this stuff because she had any idea of how famous the Beatles would eventually become. Her collecting the items didn't really have anything to do with documenting a band's history. It had more to do with just a schoolgirl's crush on a local group. Remember, Sue was 15 when she first began going to Beatles shows at the Cavern. I just picked them up because they were Beatles things, really. That's like a, you'd ask for an autograph, even though you had one. Why would you want another? Well, of course you wanted another, because it got you another five minutes talking to them. I always knew they were really good, but nobody ever could have imagined they were going to do what they did. I asked George once what he was going to do when he wasn't a Beatle. And he said, well, I hope I've got enough money to open a garage. Because <laughs> I think his brother was a panel beater, you know, for new cars or something, or repairing cars. So he said, I have a garage of some kind, put my money into that. So, I mean, if he didn't think this was going to happen, nobody ever could. Though they'd played a couple of shows abroad, the Beatles at this point were still a relatively local band with a local following. Then came Christmas of 1962, when the Beatles took off to Hamburg, Germany for a short-term series of gigs. Sue knew that George lived with his mother, Louise, and that he was quite close to her. Sue figured that Louise must be lonely without George around, so she dropped down to George's house to pay Louise a visit. I imagined... She was maybe a widow, or I imagined, you know, she would be an old, really old lady. So I bought flowers and chocolates. When I got to the house, his car was in the driveway. It was a Ford Anglia. Um, it was a second-hand car, it was the first car he'd ever had. And um, there was this guy under the bonnet, and he looked up, and I kept walking, knocked at the door, and this very vivacious blonde uh, opened the door, and I didn't have to explain anything. She just shouts, oh, Harold is a fan of our George's here. So that's George's dad. To Sue's surprise, the couple invited her in and sat her down. Before long, the guy who'd been under the car hood came in. It was George's brother, Peter, who also lived there. Then George's other brother came in, who was visiting with his girlfriend. They evidently all sat around fascinated by this girl who turned up to bring flowers to George's mom. The Harrisons made her a cup of tea, they chit-chatted, and then George's mom asked if Sue would like to go upstairs to see George's bedroom. A big moment for Sue. She just left me in there. I mean, it was really spartan. I mean, it was lino on the floor, a single bed. And, of course, I'm in the bed, aren't I? My head on the pillow. And I found his pyjamas, um, looked in the wardrobe. Then he had a, all his LPs he had were all there. He had about 15 LPs. And they were nearly all of Segovia classical guitarist so I sat there and wrote them all out I wrote down all his albums if this all sounds like unusual behavior for a house guest you're right it is 
On the other hand, and while I admit I've never been a 15-year-old girl, try to put yourself in Sue's shoes. If a 15-year-old girl today found herself in the bedroom of a young Harry Styles or Justin Bieber, would anything be different? So yes, in a way, all of this is totally normal. Sue then proceeded to the bathroom. So obviously I used their toilet so I could take some toilet paper. After prowling about upstairs, Sue went back downstairs to the rest of the family. I said to his mum, I said, do you think George would mind if I washed his car for him before he gets home? And of course, they're hooting with laughter because it's January, you know. I mean, <laughs> and she said, oh, suppose if you want to. Um, she said, well, look, why don't you come on Sunday and stay and have your tea with us, you know, so... Oh, my God. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. A few days later, a letter came in the mail to Sue from Hamburg. It was a three-page letter from George with explicit instructions on how to wash his car. And it's all tongue-in-cheek. You can see it online, actually. Yeah, more or less followed it to the letter when I went back. Within just a few weeks of her having first dropped by the house... On January 11th, 1963, the Beatles released their first hit single, Please Please Me. Sue says that song was just one of the clues that things were about to change. But as soon as the opening rift of Please Please Me started, I just knew that was going to be a massive hit. You could just tell. It was just, wasn't like anything that was around at the time. And I mean, there were so many girls. There were girls coming, like from Manchester, which was 35 miles away. And they'd be coming because they'd heard about them. And it was awful. You didn't want them there. The Beatles' popularity skyrocketed soon thereafter. Please Please Me was the band's first hit single and shot to number one on UK charts. Still, though, that wasn't enough to deter Sue, who continued to drop by the Harrisons' house for breakfast and tea. It was on one of those breakfast visits that Sue evidently acquired the most infamous item in her scrapbook collection. George was back home, and one day, while George's mum was in and out of the kitchen... He was just finishing his breakfast, and so I just picked his plate up when he'd finished and took it through to the kitchen and put it on the counter. And as I put it down, I saw that he'd left just a corner, like, well, the, the, to <laughs> the toast, and it was the actual corner. He'd obviously eaten it and just didn't want to finish that bit. And I just picked it up. And by chance, when I stuck it in my book, I put the date on it, which is very unlike me because I'm not organized at all. And I don't know what made me do it, but I wrote the date on it. The date written on the toast was February 8th, 1963. Sue seems to have only first dropped by the house around a month, month and a half before. And assuming the toast itself was legit and the date on the toast is correct for when Sue retrieved it, it was right when things were about to break the band's way. Just three days later, on February 11th, the band recorded their first album, also called Please Please Me, and recorded all ten songs of it that very day. 
And then, almost exactly a year later, on February 9th, 1964, the Beatles were introduced to American audiences via the TV program The Ed Sullivan Show, with a viewing audience that night of 73 million people. While the Beatles were now a fixture in living rooms throughout the world, Sue Cement Mixer never saw them in person again. Fast forward 30 years to 1992. Sue is no longer a teenager, and bands like Nirvana and Rage Against the Machine were now dominating the airwaves. The Beatles' fame was still strong, though, and the band's memorabilia were going for vast sums on the market. Sue Cement Mixer, now in her mid-40s, figured there might be some money to be made off of the letter George wrote to her with instructions on how to wash his car. When she contacted the auction house Christie's about the letter, they responded, hmm, that's interesting, what else have you got? The auction house soon took up Sue's lot of nine scrapbooks. The Christie's representative tasked with managing the sale at the time was a woman named Carrie Wallace. I am a rock and roll and film memorabilia specialist. Carrie says she recognized immediately the historical significance of Sue's scrapbooks. It's like a time capsule of the 1960s of George Harrison's life, really. There was fascinating material in there. She also listed, you know, all the records that were in his record album collection. So you had there at first hand was the record of the discs that George Harrison was influenced by at that time. Probably nobody else had that, that information. So, you know, it was an amazing collection. The Christie's website lists what else was in the lot of scrapbooks, and it's pretty extraordinary. It includes lists of both the 184 songs performed by the group at different venues and 101 of the songs they performed regularly at the Cavern. It also includes publicity shots and press clippings, a cigarette butt from George's car, a twig from Paul McCartney's home garden, and a piece of the blanket from George's bed. All the stuff of a hardcore Beatles fan, before it was cool. When the media got hold of the story, however, it focused almost exclusively on the toast. Carrie Wallace and Sue both lamented the media's focus on the toast. Sue, in particular, said the toast was all but insignificant to the rest of the lot, and that the media's attention made her out to be a self-interested gold digger instead of a lifelong lover of the band. It just sat in my book, and at a later date, when I was selling the stuff, and when they asked me, what sort of stuff was in it? I mean, I didn't say, well, I want this, <laughs> this is piece of toast. <laughs> I didn't mention the toast. I mean, there were maybe half a dozen scrapbooks and it was just stuck in one of them. So they must have gone through page by page and read. I mean, I could have just stuck it in and said nothing, but I put George's toast in the date, blah, blah. So, yeah, when it was a few days before the sale, it was in the newspaper and it was something like a toast to Beetle George. And, of course, it named me. <laughs> it was a weird time because it was like that was the main attraction and it was so not the main attraction. When music journalist Patrick Humphreys interviewed George Harrison in 1992, George himself appeared less than pleased about the toast. My memory of it is it, I was setting up the, the, the tape 
And when you're setting up the tape to an interview, you're making small talk, you know, and, and, you know, the usual, what did you have for breakfast? To make conversation, I said, oh, I see that there's been a recent auction of Beatles memorabilia and that some of the toasts that you left on your first American tour was, was up for auction. What George said when I mentioned it was that total bullshit. I ate all my toast. I never left any. The madness is the people selling it and the people buying it. George's comment implies that he bought into the prevailing media narrative around the sale of the toast and didn't know it was part of a larger collection of scrapbooks, let alone that it was Sue Cement Mixer selling them. Then again, in the years following the band's breakup in 1969 and 1970, the bandmates were often annoyed at the sale of Beatles memorabilia and much of the publicity in general. Patrick Humphreys again. And then George, well, he hated doing publicity. He hated talking about the Beatles. Uh, he'd have been far happier staying at Friar Park or going to Formula One race meetings or financing Monty Python films or, or going to Chelsea Flower Show. Despite Sue's disappointment by the toast fixation, there is a certain logic behind why a morsel of food owned by a beloved figure might be attractive to a collector. My name is Fabio Parasecoli. I'm a professor of food studies in the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies at New York University. According to Professor Parasecoli, a piece of food has a way of connecting us viscerally to important people. Food becomes such an important contributor to who we are, to our identity, and we all live this. So I am, in a way, what I eat, my choices in what I shop, what I cook, what I consume, define me. And so in a way, that little piece of bread had part of the identity of the eater. So I think this connection with the identity is one of the core elements there. Professor Patasecoli says if George had been eating filet mignon instead of toast, he might have come off as that much less accessible. There is also a strong element of class identification in a way. We can see that sometimes, you know, celebrities want to underline how special and how different they are by eating outrageous stuff at outrageous prices. But that's not only the case. Think about politicians trying to get elected. What they want to do is show that they are one of the people. So they eat pizza, they eat hot dog. So um, the fact that it was a toast that George Harrison uh, left there, in a way underlines the fact that the celebrity, it's close to us, it's like us. And so it, it makes it more part of who we are. And also it reminds us of, you know, the humble origins of the band. Fast forward to the present day. The buyer and the owner of the scrapbooks, which included the infamous piece of toast, remains a mystery. Neither Sue Cement Mixer nor Carrie Wallace knows who eventually bought them. And while the owner of the toast remains unknown, the story was never really about the toast, or necessarily about one of the biggest bands in music history. It's about a 15-year-old girl preserving her memory of her schoolgirl crush. It was a crush so big that she was willing to wash his car and to save his toast and his toilet paper, all of which was totally, completely normal. At least for the Beatles' first superfan. 
Our next story comes from my colleague, Eden Faithful, a staff writer at America's Test Kitchen. The story begins as Eden and her partner, Daniel, sit down together for dinner. Eden has a big surprise in store. Oh my God. No, this is your best yet. It's really good. This is my best yet, you think? Yeah, I think so. All right, all right. Do you really like it? Are you sure? I really like it. Okay, because I I got the ingredients from someone new, actually. What do you... Where where did you get the ingredients from? Um, so I got them... I'm gonna get most of them from the dumpster behind the market basket. Oh, God. Why? Why? Oh, my God. Okay, maybe you'd also feel a bit uneasy if I told you I got our green chili chicken enchiladas from a dumpster behind a supermarket. I get it. Dumpster diving is often seen as dirty or deviant... And look, it can be dangerous in the wrong circumstances. Divers have to be aware that certain hazards like glass or bacteria could end up in the food they're grabbing from dumpsters. There's also the very real danger of being perceived as a threat and having the cops being called on you as you dig through the goods. And I'm just reaching in. Admittedly, I probably looked like a pretty shady character lurking in the back alley of my local supermarket. It was 11 p.m. on a Tuesday night. But eventually, I saw the so-called trash being taken to the dumpster and was able to walk right up to it and fish things out. This part of the process is pretty important. Knowing that the produce has been sitting on a shelf only minutes prior, you can be sure that what you're getting is fresh, especially when it comes to perishables like meat and dairy. If you do come across supermarket food in a dumpster with no employees in sight, using a few of your senses also works. Is the food still cool to the touch? Does it smell spoiled? Are there any serious blemishes or creepy crawlies that you can see? This will usually tell you everything you need to know about the food. But in this case, I had stumbled upon a jackpot. Sleeves of bread. There's a whole bag of perfectly fresh apples. There's onions. There's some corn tortillas. In here, perfectly fresh. There must be like 10 or 12. I spent about five minutes pulling things out of the dumpster and walked away with two grocery bags full of fresh food. I cooked it, I ate it, and lived off the meals it produced for a week. Chicken enchiladas, a few grilled sandwiches, some salads. It didn't cost a cent and would have otherwise gone rotten in that back alley. I've spoken a lot about food insecurity. It's a topic that continually came up when I produced a radio show in my hometown of Sydney, Australia, and again when I was editing a food magazine there. So dumpster diving isn't new to me. I knew about it. I had friends who practiced it. But it seems like a fringe option, more of a performance of sustainable action than anything else. In Australia, dozens of organisations, as part of the Australian Food Pact Agreement, redistribute supermarket waste to food-insecure communities and shelters. It's not a perfect system by any means. Far too much still falls through the cracks. But there's undeniable intention of real action. When I moved to Boston a little less than a year ago, I was floored by the US food systems. Their distinct inaccessibility and the little care that anyone seems to have about the fate of fresh food. This isn't, of course, the fault of the retailers, or shoppers for that matter. Ensuring food stays fresh from the farm to the shelves, 
redistributing food waste and investing in safe cold chains to deliver perishables to food insecure communities, it all takes money, a lot of it. And very few financial incentives exist to propel real action. But what interests me is the effect that dumpster diving tries to have on tackling this huge problem of food waste. The amount of food that's wasted across farming, retail, and households in America could feed up to 2 billion people. That's nearly three times the number of people experiencing food insecurity on Earth. But there are some who are taking the ethos of dumpster diving and scaling it, helping families and communities gain access to food that would otherwise be wasted. One dumpster diver has gone so far as to create an entire organization around the fresh produce he's found in supermarket dumpsters. I visited him at his commercial kitchen in Florida, and you know what? It's true. One supermarket's trash really can be another person's Sunday dinner. I had never been to Tampa before, but despite my unfamiliarity with the area, the twists and turns from back road to back road convinced me that my Uber driver had gotten lost only minutes before I actually arrived at my destination. Sure enough, an interlacing network of back roads later, I'm at an almost deserted car park, leading to a single back door. I'd arrived. The kitchen, as it's called, is a shared commercial space in the heart of Tampa Bay that's home to 360 Eats. 360 Eats is an organization that provides sustainable solutions to food waste. I'm here to speak to Cameron McLeish, the organization's founder. I wanted to know how he went from avid dumpster diver to feeding hundreds of people across Tampa with rescued food waste. But Cameron, for now, is nowhere to be seen. Instead, his mum, known to everyone as Chef Ellen, is busily scrubbing down the industrial benches and sorting recently rescued food. Chef Ellen is vice chairman and the head chef at 360 Eats, and possibly one of the most elegant people I've ever seen holding a Scotch-Brite sponge. Her curly blonde hair bobs and swirls as she greets me and chatters away about the night's menu. I've got some cans of hatched chili, I'll put that in and... Yeah, and then I have some meatballs that I put a bunch of, like, tomatoes, mushrooms, green bell peppers that I had roasted and frozen. So again, I just pulled them out of the freezer as a just-in-case I'm feeding people tomorrow. Chef Ellen is prepping for an event to help feed food-insecure people. And tonight, none of her volunteers have shown up. So I pull on an apron and some plastic gloves to lend a hand when Cameron tumbles into the kitchen— He's apologizing for being late. He's wearing faded cargo shorts, a backward baseball cap, and a sheepishly proud smile. And I can't help but think that if you pointed this guy out on the street and told me he was a dumpster diver, I probably wouldn't doubt you for a second. I liked that about him. We take a quick break from the food prep, and he begins showing me around. Cameron began by pointing out floor-to-ceiling pantries held together with chicken wire and industrial fridges stocked with their signature zero-waste cider. We were receiving a lot of seasonal fruits that we just couldn't process in time. So we started brainstorming and we're like, there's got to be another way to like utilize this fruit in a way that would support the organization. I saw another organization do something similar with like stale bread. So I was like, huh, I wonder if you could do the same thing with like, you know, fruits, like maybe turn it into cider. So we had this partnership with this brewery that we were doing these zero waste brunches at. 
Rescuing and upcycling food that would otherwise go to waste has been Cameron's thing since his days as a backpacker. He was traveling through Australia, living with a household of students looking to save on their grocery bills. Finding opportunity in the bags of trash outside local supermarkets, they resolved to make all of their meals from dumpster-dived ingredients. Seeing the cornucopia that rescued food could provide for not just one person, but an entire household, the dumpsters Cameron encountered started to look less like garbage bins and more like unexplored gold mines. And, um, you know, we opened up the dumpster and it was like opening up a treasure chest. I could not believe what I was seeing. Gourmet uh, cheeses and meats and produce and everything was so cold and fresh. And I was like, why? Like, literally, why is this happening? So after that, it kind of sparked my imagination. And I was like, you know, how far down the rabbit hole can I go with this? And I... I made it like a goal to try to source 100% of my food throughout my travels over the course of uh, a little over two years from primarily dumpster dive food. And I was pretty successful in that. Bringing his passion for rescued food home to his mum, Cameron and Chef Ellen began hosting a YouTube channel together where they would cook gourmet food Cameron had dumpster dived to help break the taboo of what they called rescued produce. We're back in the kitchen, and today we're going to be making a toasted ravioli. Mm. So let's explain what exactly are we going to be using today. All right, we're going to start with the sauce for dipping it in. You can't have toasted ravioli without a delicious dipping sauce. The channel was a bit of fun for Cameron and Ellen, who admittedly didn't have any experience with filming and video editing. But showing others what food from the dumpster could be turned into was an important project for the pair and made them an unexpected hit, landing them on Breakfast TV with a segment on NBC's The Today Show. Crisp apples, artisanal breads, fresh veggies, a beautiful bounty, all courtesy of your local dumpster. A lot of the food that's going to waste isn't bad food. That's right. Cameron McLeish is a dumpster diver, spending the last four years collecting food from commercial trash containers. With their platform and message beamed into living rooms across the country, fans of the show began sending in mountains of dumpster-dived and rescued food. So much that Cameron and Ellen simply couldn't use it all up themselves. The problem is when we were receiving that food, it was cool for like the you know visual element of it, but um, when it came to actually utilizing that food, I mean, we'd, we'd sit there with hundreds of pounds of good food. And apart from cooking it for this one YouTube you know, channel, we were really limited with what we could do with that because most food pantries in the area, they couldn't take it because it was dumpster dives. Seeing the sheer volume of produce that was discarded by the stores and restaurants he was visiting, Cameron knew that more could be done. Looking down at an elaborate spread of fresh, healthy meals, all made with rescued ingredients, he got the idea for 360 Eats. And it all of a sudden, it made total sense to me. I was like, Instead of wasting this food, why not reroute that food to the people who, who are food insecure, who need it, and could utilize it? We got our nonprofit status in uh, 2020, and we've been kind of operational since. And essentially, we're in a position now where those same grocery stores where I was dumpster diving are now partners with 360 Eats, and they donate the food. Grocery stores donate unsold produce, bakery items, and canned goods directly, and 360 Eats then solicits volunteer chefs to cook them into gourmet meals for those in need. Those meals are then served at events like their zero-waste brunches, community food drives, and a sustainable catering for assisted living facilities. 
I spent the rest of the day with Cameron and Chef Ellen volunteering in the kitchen. We spent the next few hours washing peaches, chopping tomatoes, and, of course, talking about dumpster diving. Swapping war stories, as it were. Cameron told me about how during one of his dives, he noticed that grocery store employees had doused a bag of fresh produce with bleach. And I knew because as soon as I jumped in the, in the dumpster, everything was coated in it, covered in it. And if I hadn't had heard stories about it beforehand, I would have thought like, oh, you know, maybe it was an accident sort of thing. But um, I'd heard enough stories beforehand to know that, like, I believe this was intentional. And, um, you know, my thoughts are what just lock the dumpster. Like, wh- why go to the why go to the, you know, the, the lengths of dumping bleach and potentially harming a, a person who's just trying to eat the food that you're throwing out? While retailers may be throwing bleach into their dumpsters to deter rodents or eliminate bacteria, these methods can still be terrifying for anyone trying to access food that's often still perfectly fresh. But this doesn't happen everywhere. I had seen what dumpster diving could do for my own household and then how it could help feed dozens more families. But what can businesses with a bottom line and sales targets do to help? Can supermarkets and restaurants reduce their food waste, or better yet, redirect it to a wider community? I wanted to find a business owner who was thinking about these things as well. I also, as it happens, wanted a fresh slice of -of just-out-of-the-oven babka. Turns out I was able to score on both fronts. After the break, a bakery with a business model where nothing goes to waste. You deserve a kitchen that works for you. Kohler's sinks come in varying depths and basins so that you get your perfect fit. Their workstation sinks provide accessories to support all of your washing, rinsing, and storage needs. All of Kohler's sinks and faucets are designed to make your kitchen look its best while still getting your cooking goals accomplished. And what a relief that is, especially during the holidays. Visit Kohler.com to learn more. Hey, Proof listeners, Kevin Pang here. I'm on the record as a mango lover. There's nothing better than a juicy, ripe, perfectly naturally sweet mango. But it has me wondering, if you're at the store, how can you tell a mango is juicy, ripe, and ready to eat? Well, lucky for me, my colleague Sasha Coleman, a test cook at America's Test Kitchen, knows just the technique when it comes to spotting a ripe mango. Hey, Sasha. Hey, Kevin. So I've seen a lot of mango varieties at the store, and they come in many different colors. So I feel like judging the ripeness by how red or yellow the mangoes are. And that doesn't really work. So tell me, how do you know when mangoes are ripe? There are a lot of different mango varieties available year-round. There's Tommy Atkins, there's Honey, there's Kent, you name it. So don't judge a mango by its color. What I like to do is pick one up and squeeze it gently. If there's a little gift to the mango, it's likely right. Oh, that's interesting. So pick it up, use your hands, give it a gentle squeeze. It shouldn't be too firm or too mushy. If there's just a little bit of a give, that's how I can tell it's ripe. Exactly. Well, how about that? Go to mango.org slash proof for tantalizing mango recipes and to learn more about mangoes. And now, back to our story. 
Or Ohana, co-founder of Boston Bakery Bakey, sees it as not only an opportunity, but a responsibility to ensure his breads and pastries can be enjoyed by anyone and everyone, even after they've hit the shelf. And it's a view he's held throughout his time in the food industry. For me, even as a waiter, counter person, I can say I was depressed by seeing the waste. Even if I knew that it's not too much, it's not a lot of money, but it's a lot of food. It's a lot of food in front of your eyes. And even if you don't get that, you feel like, uh, you feel better if you see less waste. I don't know, you go home clean. Or is an Israeli baker from Tel Aviv who moved to the US three years ago to open a bakery in Boston. Our first intention was to open in 2020, April 2020. But we we didn't receive the email about COVID. We're sitting in a small office to the side of the kitchen and bakers and chef whites bustle around the ovens just outside the door. Occasionally, Orr gets distracted by what he perceives as a not-generous-enough dollop of melted chocolate or a Queen Amman that should be more liberally doused in granulated sugar. He cares deeply about his food and the experience customers have while eating it. That much is clear. Or established Bakey with co-founder and renowned Israeli baker Ori Sheft. It was important to both of them to reduce their food waste with an eye to eliminating it completely. And so they partnered with Too Good To Go, a company that helps businesses redistribute surplus food at an accessible price point. For Or, it was about establishing a tradition for the bakers that would follow him. Rather than simply offering a few free samples, he wanted to ensure customers could receive a real meal at an accessible price. I want to create a tradition. I want to create, like, to give students around us, people that can afford it less, because our products are not so cheap. Like, why not? Of course, Too Good To Go is a paid service that still represents a clear benefit from a business standpoint. Its retail partners set aside unsold food, which is listed on the Too Good To Go app where customers can buy a surprise basket of food and pick it up from the store at a reduced price. It's an important incentive and a first step for small businesses to reduce their food waste. Because it's not an easy step for every business to take. Or explains. Baked good is different because it's been baked. But if you take like meat, produce, uh, eggs, stuff like that, it's very, very hard to donate that. You need to have a chilling, like a chilled car or truck and you have to have the special boxes and you have to label it properly. It's hard. It's not easy to donate, but I totally understand a person like a mom and pops or a small business where every cent counts. But Bakey goes a step further than reselling food at a lower price point or ensures that no food items touch their dumpster at all. Instead, he insists on keeping excess and unsold food on a baking tray at the front of the shop so that anyone who isn't able to pay for a baguette or a loaf of hazelnut babka can enjoy it without paying a cent or without cracking a dumpster lid. People from the shelters that walk around and uh, they walk in, they take, they take a sample and they move on. So they, can, they are having something sweet on us, but it's part of it. Like we will have a sheet pan in the front of house on a table, so you can come in, grab a sample without any obligation. With a, like, it's a, we're not pulling you in, have the sample, and and then you're obligated. You can try it and leave. Like, we are good with that. 
or presents Bakey's free food in a way that respects the dignity of anyone who wants to take it. Which raises an important point. For many food-insecure people and families, participating in dumpster diving isn't a trendy foray into a more sustainable lifestyle. It might be easy to see dumpster diving as it is sold to us by more privileged people, very much like myself, as a gentrified loophole in the food system. As easy, as safe, and as clean as my experiences with it has been, I couldn't report this story without acknowledging how this experience might play out for someone else. I dumpster dive with the confidence that I most likely won't be harassed or questioned for loitering around the back alley of a supermarket. And if I am, I don't have reason to believe that any suspicion leveled at me could end in a more severe punishment than I would deserve, or even violence. Privilege is most definitely a factor for the many dumpster divers across the nation, and it's an important aspect to recognize. So I am now walking away from my local grocery store with about two bags full of fresh produce, fresh onions, fresh apples, corn tortillas, canned goods. I am amazed that this happened, but I am also incredibly infuriated that it was this easy to grab such fresh produce that could have gone elsewhere, could have gone to people who needed it a lot more than I do. I've seen the gourmet cheeses and expensive cuts of meat that I would have reflexively ignored in the supermarket aisles sitting abandoned in dumpsters. I've cooked for myself, my partner, friends and family from rescued ingredients, fished perfectly fresh from trash bins. But also, I get it. Bypassing the sliding doors and heading straight to your supermarket's dumpsters may not necessarily be in your plans for this week's grocery shop. You may, understandably, fear the consequences of being caught. That's fine. But if you're as baffled at our food systems that see almost half of American produce going to waste as I am, there's still plenty you can do. Donating what you can or offering a helping hand to the organizations on the front line can go such a long way. But to be clear, the solution to food waste also lies in building systems of scale that can cater to those who need fresh food the most. More of what 360 Eats and Too Good To Go is trying to build. It can't just be on us as individuals. Cameron McLeish told me as much. So really, funding is is the biggest need right now um, uh, because a lot of what we do is like on a local scale at the moment. Um, You know, people outside of the Tampa Bay area, um, it's, it's tricky, again, for them to physically get involved. But, um, you know, they're more than welcome to make, if they're inspired by what, what we're doing, they want to see us grow into like a national scale, they can absolutely head over to our website. It's uh, 360eats.org. There you can make a contribution if you're feeling generous. You can also check out our page. It's got more information on there. I've come a long way since my first plate of dumpster-dived food. Meeting Cameron and Chef Ellen has made me realize that even if individual action like dumpster diving doesn't solve wider ranging problems in the US food systems, it is a scalable solution that can be leveraged for larger communities. And redirecting uneaten food isn't just limited to charitable organizations. Bakey's Orohana is a prime example of a business that's doing what it can to eliminate its waste and still meet its bottom line. From a young age, we've always been told to not eat that garbage. Well, if there's one thing I've learned, it's that there are ways in which we can and should. I guess garbage is really what you make of it.
Our last story today, where donuts go to die. We'll hear about a sheet cake that makes its way from a grocery store to a food bank and then into a bottle. This story comes from reporter Eliza Rothstein. It is currently Easter. It's, in fact, 4.30 p.m. on Easter Sunday, and I'm still seeing tables and tables of Easter cupcakes, pastel, ombre frosting, little bunnies, little piped grass. So, I don't know, maybe people are... Maybe people are in for the post-Easter discount cupcakes, but if not, I can only imagine that some of these are not going to find a mouth, unfortunately. I strolled home from this stop and shop, the one near Barclays Center in Brooklyn, wondering, where does all of this stuff go? How could these perishables in the grocery store baking section, festive or not, turn over quickly enough. I mean, there were five different refrigerators filled with sheet cakes, pre-decorated with those balloon frosting blobs ready to be customized. There were whoopie pies and raspberry Linzer tarts and bunt cakes and brownies. How could all of these baked goods possibly get purchased while they're still fresh? And if indeed they don't, where do they go? I'm Vanessa Ruiz, and I'm the Vice President of Operations at the Jacobson Cushman San Diego Food Bank. This story is not about food banks, but stay with me. Vanessa has worked at the San Diego Food Bank for 19 years. She started as a receptionist and worked her way up to running operations for a food bank where she's in charge of tons, like actual metric tons, of incoming and outgoing food. We work with your grocery stores, local grocery stores, mom and pop grocery stores. So from the smallest to the biggest, you name it, um, they're partners of the San Diego Food Bank. It's difficult, right? Because we are a food bank. And so we rely so heavily on those donations. And it's very difficult unless we're purchasing the food to decide exactly what we want to bring in. This means Vanessa and her team are at the mercy of whatever the grocery stores give them. And one category that consistently makes its way onto the donation trucks... Let's just say one of the grocery stores provided us with a cake, you know, sheet cake. Sheet cakes. And their bakery aisle neighbors. Sometimes the sheet cakes can be distributed. But often, after journeying from grocery store to food bank, they're a bit worse for wear. And during transportation, that sheet cake has just kind of, you know, smushed and the box is all, you know, torn up. And we were not going to give that out to a family. The food bank has a room called the Sorting and Salvage Room, where they sort out what they can't distribute and try to save as much of that food as possible. And they do a really good job. Right now, about just less than 3% of the food that comes into the food bank is actually thrown out. Despite these efforts, like composting and even asking local farms if they want baked goods for animal feed, the sheet cake remains a problem for the food bank to handle. And so items like that, sheet cakes, cupcakes, um, bread uh, that has been, you know, slightly open, contaminated, or again, smashed and and no longer presentable. um, Those are some of the items that we would typically have to throw away. And that falls into that 3%. So what happens to that grab-and-go Easter bunny cake that doesn't make it out of the bakery case? 
I'm not sure how things work in Brooklyn, but in the food systems of northern San Diego, the answer for a long time was the cake gets thrown away. It ends up in a landfill. But I promised you this story wasn't about donations to food banks, and it's not about cakes and landfills. This story is about how some of San Diego's smushed sheet cakes got one final shot at life. These days, after the food bank, the cakes and their bakery aisle friends never make it to the landfill. Instead, they find their way into something far more intoxicating. Uh, take a look at the menus on our QR code. Um, since it's your first time, we're going to give you a little sample of our vodka. We make it in-house. Uh, and Enter the brains behind Misadventure Distillery in San Diego, California. My name is Wit Regali. I'm the co-founder, VP of Marketing and Sales, and bartender, janitor, distiller, bread cutter, upper. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well... If we're going to name the whole gambit. And that's Sam, the other co-founder. My name is Sam Shereskin, and I'm one of the co-founders, along with Whit Regali, uh, CEO, president, head engineer, IT guy, <laughs> janitor number two, um, I don't know, mad scientist. Misadventure's origin story began in 2015, when Sam and Wit were set up by a mutual friend. Wit was a bartender, and Sam was working at BevMo, one of those big box wine and liquor stores. Wit and Sam both wanted more from their work in the beverage industry and had their sights set on distilling. Sam wanted to see whether Wit had what he was looking for in a partnership. Sam came into my bar and gave me what basically equated to like an informal interview. And uh, I, I, I think I passed the interview. In the beginning, they wanted to make whiskey. But whiskey is a tough spirit for new distillers. It requires patience. What makes whiskey whiskey is the time that it sits in a barrel, sucking flavor and color out of oak. So to see quick results, Wit and Sam decided to make vodka. Relative to other distilled spirits, we're talking whiskey, rum, gin, tequila, brandy, vodka requires very few steps. We'll get into this more later, but when making vodka, you don't need to blend it. You don't have to age it. You don't have to add botanicals to impart flavor. In fact, vodka is, by definition, odorless and flavorless. And for those reasons, it also seemed kind of boring. We chose at that time to try to find a way to make a clear spirit interesting to us. That desire to complicate one of the world's simplest spirits set Wit and Sam off on a years-long journey a journey that would eventually bring them face-to-face -face with, you guessed it, those smushed sheet cakes. But first, let's hit rewind on how that all happened. I'm still working a retail job, sitting out in the sweaty heat, in my uniform, trying to like enjoy a 10-minute break, listening to NPR or something. And 2015, the Natural Resources Defense Council issued their now off-sited report about 40% of food being thrown away in the United States. A report by the Natural Resources Defense Council says that as much as 40% of all the food produced in the United States never gets eaten. Americans throw away $165 billion worth of food every year. That's about 20 So Sam hears this staggering data, 
And my background was in trying to add value to food systems. And a thought occurs to him. Went to Wit and asked, well, is there a secondhand starch source that we would like to try hydrolyzing and turn into sugar and turn into a product? If you have no clue what hydrolyzing means, don't worry. Just know for now that Sam is wondering if there's any way to make vodka from these pounds and pounds of food currently being thrown away. And he has an idea. Bread? Bread's at every store every day, all the time. And it's entirely starch. So could we use that? After all, vodka is made from water, yeast, and starch. At a chemical level, starch is really just a bunch of sugar molecules smushed together. Normally, the starch used to make vodka is grain, corn, maybe potato, all starches that easily break down into those individual sugar molecules that they're made of. When we, you and I, eat a loaf or a piece of bread, our glycemic index shoots up like we just ate raw sugar. So the question was, if bread turns to sugar in our bodies, will it turn to sugar for yeast to eat? Will it act like corn or grain? Sam calls this the research question. So he and Wit set out to test it. They decide to make vodka from bread. Naturally, they head to the grocery store, but they don't want to buy bread that someone else could, well, eat. The whole point of exploring a secondhand starch source is to use a resource that would have otherwise been thrown away. So they ask their local stores if they can have the bread that doesn't get purchased. But right off the bat, they run into a problem. Wit explains. We were actually going to grocery stores and talking to the managers there and, and being like, hey, what do you do with all your stuff? And they were like, who the heck are you guys? For a number of liability reasons, grocery stores weren't willing to work directly with Wit and Sam. So they had to find a back door. Sam had an idea. The Food Policy Council, I didn't have a line on large-scale amounts of Dale bread until I went there. The Food Policy Council, a meeting of the minds for key players in a community's food system. In San Diego, this meant folks from advocacy groups to government branches to restaurants to nonprofits doing direct service. Very first meeting, introduced myself, and at the end asked, hey, does anyone have any extra pastries? And six hands shot up. One of those hands belonged to the San Diego Food Bank. Remember Vanessa from the beginning of the story? I had to ask permission if we could work with them, right? When Sam and Witt asked the food bank for the carbs that were going to be thrown away, Vanessa's first thought was, what could these guys possibly do with old bread? And they said, well, you know, we can make vodka. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. Well, that's something I'm going to have to, you know, ask about. A few days later, Sam is in his Prius. I'm filled to unsafe levels with bread, driving away from these places with no visibility out of anything but the windshield, and even that was obscured. Sam had gotten business cards and phone numbers from all those raised hands at the Food Policy Council, including the food bank, and was now driving around to each of them, cramming expiring bulls and loaves into his Prius. Wit and Sam hadn't made vodka with bread yet, so they didn't know how much bread they needed. There were many a time in which we had to pick stuff up, and then several days later, after it looked something more like remnants from Chernobyl, um, at least in terms of the amount of mold on it, we had to just throw it away ourselves. 
Even though in this instance, Sam just talked about throwing away moldy bread, when I spoke with him and Wit, they were intent on not referring to this bread, radioactive though it may be, as trash. They prefer to think about it as excess or surplus. For them, calling it trash is to say it doesn't have a use. And by golly, they are trying to use it. Anyway, back to the bread-stuffed Prius, which has now made its way to a commissary kitchen where Wit and Sam begin their experiments. We got like a tabletop food processor and spent like two days grinding down, I don't even know how many pounds of bread into like dust. They were trying to mimic the look of virgin grain and get this bread down to the size of, say, matzo meal or panko. And in general, that's how they approached this first trial. Follow the standard process of making vodka with wheat or corn, but instead use breadcrumbs. Your average loaf of bread is about 50% carb, carbohydrate dense by weight. This makes sense, right? Because bread is made up of more than just wheat. There's water and yeast, too. Your average dried number 14 dent corn is 92% carbohydrate by weight. So the assumption was, if bread has half the carb content that corn does, it should produce half the vodka that corn does. But when Wit and Sam finally produced their first bread vodka, the yield was 3% of the volume they'd expected. Only 3%. And so, after hustling to get to this point, this first bottle of vodka, they weren't so sure it would be a viable endeavor. I mean, it's really cool that they were able to make any vodka from bread, even a few drops. But this wasn't just a hobby for Wit and Sam. They were trying to build a business. They had investors who wanted to see some return. And at the end of the day, if they cared about saving excess food from the landfill, they had to figure this out. It took Wit and Sam two years to answer their research question. How can we get bread to turn into sugar for our yeast like it does in our bodies? And? My answer just has to be like, of course not going to tell you. Sam says the answer is proprietary. After all, they spent years perfecting the science that's fueling their niche business. The complexity of this science is one of the reasons we don't see many people attempt this sort of distilling. Though we don't know how they got to their answer, we do know what the result is. Wit and Sam figured out how to hydrolyze bread. In other words, they figured out how to use water to break bread apart into its individual chemical constituents. Think about baking bread. Maybe you've baked a loaf or two in the past couple of years. You mix flour, water, and yeast, three separate things, and when baked, they are chemically bonded into one new thing, bread. Hydrolysis would essentially reverse that process. This isn't just soaking a loaf of bread in water until it gets so soggy it disintegrates. It's figuring out how to undo the chemical reaction of baking in the first place. It's finding a way to isolate the starch within a loaf of bread and break that starch apart into its millions of sugar molecules so that yeast can eat those sugar molecules one by one. And they did it. Unlocking this bread's potential meant Wit and Sam could really start to scale. They opened their northern San Diego distillery in September of 2019 and called it Misadventure. 
with production and soon a tasting room underway, they could no longer drive around San Diego stuffing rogue loaves of bread into Sam's Prius. To bring misadventures' spirits to scale, they had to find a consistent, substantial inflow of baked goods. And that meant expanding beyond bread. In the beginning, it was always intentional to take it, whatever they would give us, as long as it was kind of a starch or sugar source. We kind of said bakery aisle only, but those are big bakery aisles. There's a lot of things in there. Recall back at the food bank, a whole category of carbs was getting tossed. The smashed sheet cakes, yes, but also the bran muffins starting to get moldy, the expired Thanksgiving stuffing, and that Twinkie box that was opened— those iconic soft, pale, cakey sugar cookies with blue or pink frosting and sprinkles. Well, now they all get put into a special bin for misadventure at the San Diego Food Bank. Vanessa explains. It was very clear from the very beginning of this relationship that all we can give you is what we have. We're not creating trash for you. We're not diverting good food to you. This is literally product that we were going to throw away. These new items still had what Witt and Sam needed. Well, really what any distiller needs, which is starch. If anything, it was an added benefit that some of these treats came cream-filled or frosted, much like a pre-shelled pistachio meat. That readily available sugar without the shell of a carbohydrate around it was easier for yeast to eat. These days, Misadventure picks up 5,200 pounds of baked goods from the food bank each week. You know those blue-gray Amazon Prime vans that drive around? 5,200 pounds is like filling two of those. So each week, these carbs come in, and each week, they are turned into 650 bottles of vodka. That's eight pounds of baked goods going into each bottle of vodka. Seems like magic. But in reality, it's a lot of work. Where other distilleries just have to cut open a big sack of grain or corn, Misadventure has to put in the time and finger dexterity to unwrap hundreds and hundreds of pastries. We are the only ones in the world that all of our ingredients are individually wrapped in different ways. And so if you can imagine the easier ones would be like just a a loaf of bread. But then if you think about a box of Twinkies that inside the box is, you know, 20 individually wrapped Twinkies or uh, a clamshell filled with cupcakes that have the cupcake wrapper on the bottom of it, we have to physically take that stuff off by hand. I mean, yeah, like a a glazed donut is always fun because it's not a lot of work to take that thing out. So let's follow that glazed donut on its path to becoming vodka. Witt walks us through the process, starting at the food bank. Traditionally, Mr. Glazed Donut would be tossed aside where he would turn into methane if he was in a landfill and hurt the environment. But Miss Adventure comes along and grabs Mr. Glazed Donut and puts him in a giant pot (laughs) with water and um, breaks him down uh, with a bunch of other of his friends. (laughs) This is sounding so bad. (laughs) Sam does not like where this is going. Now we've anthropomorphized it and turned ourselves into a multi-stage crematorium. Don't forget, he's already at the end of life. Like, this is now pastry heaven. The transition doesn't need to be discussed. We're good. Well, at Misadventure, pastry heaven is, as Wit said, a giant pot of water, also known as a mash tun. The baked goods are tossed in whole, 
cream cheese frosting still on carrot cake, raisins still in oatmeal cookies. Usually there would just be wheat and water in a mash tun. In this case, it's a smorgasbord of pastries and water. There's about 300 gallons of water in there and a giant propeller blade. We will heat up that uh, mash with the donut inside there and uh, turn on that propeller blade. And with the heat and the agitation, it's gonna break down that donut with the water, basically like a, a donut soup. And we heat that up to 175 degrees Fahrenheit. That's going to pasteurize it or kill all the bacteria that could possibly be in there. This is really important. This is why Misadventure can take used baked goods from the food bank that are really on their last leg. Even if there is some mold on them or they're expired, it all comes out in the mash tun. So at this point, the hot donut soup is cooled and transferred to a new vessel, the fermentation tank. And this, by the way, is how you make really any other alcohol besides just our process. And once it's in our fermenters, we'll throw some yeast in there and the yeast will eat the sugars that are inside there. Into the tank goes the donut soup and some yeast. In this tank, Mr. Donut, who is now part of a pastry puree, undergoes further transformation as relayed by Sam. He's disintegrated into his constituent starch chains which are being picked apart by uh, trillions of tiny yeast and being metabolized one piece at a time. And if you're going to say Mr. in front of all of that, that's relatively morbid. Aside from pushing back on our personification, Sam is saying that the added yeast munches on all the sugar inside the donut particles in that soup. And like humans who eat, digest, and then eventually have to poop, Yeast, when it eats sugar, eventually has to release something. What does it release? You guessed it, alcohol. Back to it. From there, we will have now an alcoholic donut soup. And uh, we'll take that and put that back into our still. And at this point, we will distill it. And here's the crux of all distilling. Whether you have a boozy grain soup or a boozy donut soup. Water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Alcohol boils at a lower temperature, closer to 173 degrees Fahrenheit. In other words, as you crank up the heat on this donut soup, the alcohol will boil before the water does. And so when this starts boiling and there's vapor that comes up or steam, it's actually alcohol vapor. And we have a tube on top of there that directs that alcohol vapor into another container. And so when, what ends up happening is that essentially anything that's not an alcohol, like uh, water uh, or any of the solids or anything fibrous, stays in that original pot. If you're still keeping track of Mr. Donut, his body, well, what's left of it, is still in that original chamber. His, shall we say, soul, in the form of alcohol vapor, has made its way to a new chamber. Once that's done, we will add uh, some more water on top to proof it and then add minerals uh, for the taste and mouthfeel. And at that point, it goes into uh, our vodka bottles and then into martinis and things along those lines. And there you have it. From cake to cocktail, from spoiled to spoils, from marred to martini. But I was still wondering, what does this donut vodka taste like? 
All right, Liza, you ready? Let's do it. Cheers. Okay, cheers. The first thing that I'm getting is that it's really smooth. I'm not sure if you're getting that, Eliza, too, but it's, it's there's something very buttery on the palate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm pleasantly surprised. For me, the it's it's the physical sensations that are coming through. I'm getting like a little tingle on the tongue, a little bit on the lip, almost like if you eat a like a Szechuan peppercorn, that kind of buzz. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, one thing one thing would is that I've never been able to understand the nuances of what I should actually be tasting when I'm having vodka. Ours does have a, a distinct note to it. Probably with a third sip, you'll start kind of tasting it. It should taste a little sweet. Not sugary sweet, but more like vanilla sweet. Very, very subtle. And I'm wondering, what is the vanilla as a result of the baked goods or are the two things not related to each other? The, the vanilla is is because of the baked goods. I'm getting the sweetness and it's completely different than the artificiality that I had expected coming through those mass-produced baked goods. I'm so interested because my understanding of vodka is, from a definition perspective, it is odorless and flavorless. And yet there are these through lines, almost secret nods to what went in. Already, Misadventure has made a coffee liqueur with once-used coffee grounds and a limoncello with lemons from ornamental trees, both of which use their vodka as a base. They're even coming out with some inception status vanilla extract. Those vanilla notes in the vodka that Witt mentioned, they're adding vanilla beans to that vodka to make extracts that you can bake with. Full circle, sustainable homage to the sweet treats their vodka starts with. Wit sums it up. With the right tools and mindset, everything that we produce can be reused or upcycled or turned into something else that whole idea of one man's trash is another man's treasure. It should be like, it's all of our trash should be all of our treasure in a way. Uh, it should be like the model, I think. Thanks to Stephen Calabria, Eden Faithful, and Eliza Rothstein for bringing us today's stories. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer Caroline Rickert. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Alex Curran Cardarelli, and I'm also an associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Poynton, Chester Gwazda, and Anya Gzeshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composer theme music, additional music by Cal Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis is our director of post-production and our director of production is Diane Knox fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang thanks to Sue Henderson Patrick Humphreys Carrie Wallace and Fabio Parasicoli for speaking to Stephen for this story and thanks also to Peter Doggett 
Bill Harry, Mark Lewison, and Patty Boyd who lent their insights. From Eden, special thanks to Cameron and Ellen McLeish, or Ohana, Sandra Noonan, and to Daniel Ergas for putting up with Eden's dumpster diving habit. And from Eliza, special thanks to Whit Regali, Sam Chereskin, and Vanessa Ruiz. And last but not least, thanks to Romy Rossell from the Misadventure team for her coordination support. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen, and David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors Kohler, the National Mango Board, Augusta Scoffier School of Culinary Arts, Fresh Pressed Olive Oil, and the Naked Lunch Podcast. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.